Well, hello and welcome to JP Morgan's Global Data Pod. Uh, I'm Malcolm Barr. I'm managing editor of the Global Data Watch. And in this podcast, we're doing something a little different to how we normally do our pod- podcast series. Uh, normally, our podcasts are speaking to our published research and our established views. But here, we thought we'd give our listeners a bit of an insight into some of the debates going on within the department and, and some of the issues around uh, the things which generate some controversy in our internal discussion. Uh, with that in mind, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Bruce Kasman, our chief economist. He's going to speak to a view he's not been frightened to put forward in our internal discussions uh, about inflation. Uh, and certainly he's been of the view inflation was going to be higher for longer and more of a problem than some of our forecasts had uh, implied for some time. Um, I'm also joined by Joe Lupton and Nora Sventiakvani from our uh, global economics team who are, have tended to take the downside of the view on inflation. Uh, and so they're going to speak uh, a little bit to the view that uh, inflation is going to dissipate as we go through time and perhaps be uh, a little bit less of an ongoing issue uh, than Bruce has tended to suggest in our internal dialogue. Now, to just get things going and to, to make sure that we, we get the dialogue moving relatively quickly, I'm going to turn to to each of the guys here and just try and uh, get them to make what they would think of their, their three key points about inflation. Uh, I'm going to limit them to try and you know not take any more than two minutes. So let's start with Bruce. Bruce, you know your top three ideas here really as to why inflation is going to prove to be a persistent problem and and continue to be something that central banks have to have to worry about rather than feel comforted by. So I guess from from my point of view the important thing to realize is how profound the uh, effects of the pandemic and its recovery have been in terms of uh, altering the inflation process globally. And I think, um, you know, it's very clear that some of the immediate effects in terms of supply disruptions uh, and dislocations in the global economy created pressures combining with the um, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine's effect on commodity prices. Those things are uh, temporary effects that are fading from the scene, and we can certainly see them. But I think as a result of the um, uh, pandemic shock and its aftermath, we're left in a world in which supply has been materially uh, uh, reduced, and perhaps most importantly in labor markets uh, in the developed market economies, but not by any means exclusively there. I think um, in the same space, the global supply chains, while they've healed and while they're certainly responding to what has been a weak phase in manufacturing, are also, I think, not going to come back to where they were. Um, So I think this is point number one. There's been a material uh, damage done to supply. I think the second point is that there is a, um, a shift that is taking place in pricing and wage bargaining power that has been, uh, I think, influenced by the uh, the price shocks that have hit us here and are, again, unwinding, but are likely to unwind partially, especially in an environment in which we have uh, tight labor markets uh, around the world. And then I think, you know, the, the last thing I just want to say is that uh, I don't think these um, dynamics are immune to uh, weak demand. And I think uh, a recession can do the job possibly of, of helping to align demand and supply and take out some of the 
what I'll call nascent shifts in psychology that have taken place. But I don't think as a group, central banks right now are focused on, on doing that. They're trying to balance their objectives. Uh, and in an environment in which we continue to see uh, unwinding of some of the shocks from last year and continue to see pretty healthy underpinnings in terms of private sector health, uh, I do think you're going to gradually uh, uh, build into this situation a more established uh, shift in psychology that's going to end up being harder to unwind. It will get unwind with the recession, but not before. Thanks, Bruce. Joe, how about you? Your, your three main points on the other side of the debate. Well, I mean, first, I'd say I don't think our, our views are all that different. I think I started the year more with a uh, with a with a Goldilocks view, and I, I think that view is shifting a little bit more closer to the uh, stickier inflation, and that's just been a product of the fact that first half inflation has been running a bit hotter. How I, the, however, the points I, I I would make around this and how to think about this, and I don't think the the decision is certainly made yet. The jury's still out. Is is one first recognize inflation ultimately is a policy choice. The question is how do we get back to two percent? I would not doubt central banks' willingness to get there. And the the view we've increasingly pushed as as Bruce has been leading the way is that it's going to take higher rates to get back to two percent. And and but don't lose sight of the fact that that inflation will be a policy choice ultimately. The second point I'd make is just kind of on the on the transition of how to get there. The first part of the inflation surge, I think, was a, a forced pullback in supply. But we're now in a different phase of this where I think it's more about, you know, whether we're still seeing some supply disruptions. And I think it's less and less so. And it's more about the choice of where businesses want to kind of set their supply conditions in a world where they are potentially having pricing power. And that, that kind of leads me to the third point, which is, for me, it's less about salience and market psychology, and maybe these are the same things, but I like to think about it in terms of pricing power. Do firms have pricing power? And if you viewed the world as fairly kind of efficient, Bertrand-style pricing before the pandemic, and the pandemic was a coordinating event that allowed everyone to kind of shift into more Corneau-style pricing that you know basically built in some monopoly-type power uh, you know, this new coordinating event, the higher pricing power of firms could lead us into this, I guess, what Bruce is calling salience, which is people now feel like they can charge higher prices and keep raising prices. Why? Because the other guy's raising prices. And that new world order uh, does kind of lead to somewhat stickier inflation. I think it still remains to be seen whether as the bottleneck pressures, these things come off, whether we slip back into a world of the old style, more efficient type of pricing from before the, before the pandemic versus uh, whether we are in this new world order of just kind of higher pricing power. And in, in that environment, then central banks do need to step in, generate a recession to drive lower inflation. So I, I think the jury's still out. I'm happy to take the other side of what Bruce is saying, but my, my gut is probably saying, uh, maybe a little bit closer to that, at least after the first half of this year. Nora, let's have three ideas from you. Yeah, I mean, some some of them, I suppose, might hit on what Joe has already said. But, um, you know, I, I take Bruce's point that there has been uh, material damage uh, to supply, but I'm going to argue that a lot of the damage is uh, transitory. 
Uh, we have had a series of very large adverse supply shocks last year, you know, the commodity price surge, China lockdown, supply chain disruptions, but these are quickly evaporating from the scene. It's, you know, just taking a bit longer for the impact of these to feed through into consumer price inflation. We're already seeing core inflation come down and you know, part of these could be short-lived, but I'm going to argue that we have further to run and we could probably stay at lower inflation rates for a longer period of time. We could get down to something like two and a half percent and stay there. Um, I think the importance of China shouldn't be overlooked. Again, Bruce might argue this is just a temporary impulse, but I think these are precisely the disinflationary impulses we need right now uh, to potentially shock us out of inflation persistence or the risk of inflation persistence developing. China deflationary impulse, manufacturing recession, all of these are going to push core goods inflation lower. And I think there's a very good chance that the new normal will actually not be very different from what we saw prior to the pandemic. Uh, similarly, labor markets are already softening without unemployment rates going up uh, significantly. Uh, wage growth is coming off in many countries as headline inflation comes off. And I think that's going to re-anchor wage negotiations at lower levels. The final point I'd make is on the labor force. Uh, you know, we've said that we can't really rely on labor supply from bailing us out of this inflation problem. There as well, I would argue that a lot of the reductions we're seeing to labor supply are probably not permanent. And we are going to continue to see some improvement in the supply side of labor markets as people from early retirement come back. And it's just going to take a bit longer for, the just, for these adjustments to play out. Uh, I think central banks just need to sit tight, keep rates at these higher levels for longer, but they don't need to add any additional restrictiveness to the, the stances that we're already seeing right now. So let me ask you just, Nora, around the baseline that would have both global and U.S. inflation settle somewhere, let's just say in the low to mid threes over the next year, you think two and a half is a, a better uh, gauge of where we're going to end up? For me, yes. I mean, for me, uh, with the view I'm taking on uh, core goods inflation in particular, and I know you and I have had this debate of where things settle, maybe we don't get back to the 0.5% pre-pandemic pace, but let's say we get back to 1%. I think there's a very decent chance of that happening um, as uh, the disinflationary impulses, I think, will be longer lasting than we think, particularly from China and um, at least in the near term from the manufacturing recession. And then the services side is the big question. But I think even there, I'm seeing um, glimmers of hope. So I think if you add those two together, it's not that difficult to get us down to two and a half percent. I mean, this this raises a question I'd, I'd put to, to everyone here, which is to what extent are we really all talking about the, uh, the same view, but just with slightly different wrinkles in terms of time span? And to what extent are we, we really in a position where there are actually two quite fundamentally different readings of the inflation process? You know, one way of looking at the world is there's been a regime shift. And yes, to some extent, the, the data will, you know, be uh, less harsh in terms of, you know, showing us high inflation as we go forward. But we're getting stuck in a world where the run rates are just going to be persistently above central bank targets. That's one reading. You know, the other reading is really, well, it might just take some time. But, you know, eventually we're going to be back to something which is much more like the like the old world. So, I mean, is it really the case that we're all in the in the time domain aspect of this or is there really a fundamental difference? Yeah, it's, it's not just time, Malcolm. I think that the, the key call here is whether it's going to take 
whether it's going to take a recession and whether it's going to take central banks that need to keep driving rates higher, certainly higher than market pricing to get that recession in order to get uh, in order to get inflation down. And what I mean by it is, you know, when I talk about pricing power as the key kind of framework here, do firms have it or not? I'm thinking of a supply curve that shifted upward because of that of that pricing power. And then the question is, you've got bottleneck pressures that were a part of that as well, these transitory forces. As those forces between kind of transitory bottleneck and pricing power, as those are kind of you know battling themselves out, the supply curve is kind of shifting outward. If it doesn't come down enough, if firms still feel like they have pricing power, inflation stays high. And then central banks need to pull the demand curve in and generate that type of uh, that type of recession. So, so let me I, let me jump in here. I think I think there's two dimensions. I think it, Joe said there one dimension is do we need a recession to bring this under control? Uh, and that you know obviously is is both an issue about do we need a recession and when do we get it? Um, but the second issue is I think the one that kind of highlights in some ways the difference between what Nora was laying out and what what I was describing. There's a uh, an opportunity over time, uh, especially if central banks are restraining demand to some degree, to get improvements in supply that will alleviate some of the uh, pressures that have built up over the last uh, uh, couple of years. You can debate how much of an improvement you're going to get. I'll I'll say Nora, the older folks, at least in the U.S., uh, from personal experience, don't look to me like they're coming back to the workforce that that that, that significantly. But we can. Can certainly debate that, but the uh, the opportunity for some supply improvement, I think, is there. Uh, the horse race there is both about how complete that will be, but also to what degree does a gradual process of disinflation further embed the uh, the shifts that both uh, uh, you know Joe and I are talking about on psychology, pricing power, and those things. Is that if you if you let this if you don't have this thing play out over a very short period of time, do you find yourself 12 or 18 months from now without a recession being in a situation where you've embedded uh, uh, a different psychology in both wage and, and price setting and you find yourself with uh, a more difficult task in terms of un unwinding it? Uh, I'd I mean, be, so in relative to what you say, I'll just sum up and say I'm, I'd be less optimistic about the improvement in supply and more concerned about the, the potential that over time, the failure to bring inflation down quickly uh, would be a problem from the point of view of this um, embedded psychology shift. I mean, maybe, I, yeah, just quickly to add on, I think on the demand side as well, we have to allow for longer lags in the transmission of monetary policy. Um, you know, Joe and I wrote about a lot about the transmission from rate hikes into debt service ratios, for example. I mean, I, I personally was shocked like how long it's taking and probably will still take for some of those rate hikes to feed through. You know, that's a function of various things. One of them is just the, the much higher share of fixed rate debt. So it just takes much longer for these rate hikes to start to have that impact on, on overall, you know, private sector demand. It doesn't mean central banks haven't done enough. It just means we need to wait maybe until 2025. Um, then to your point, uh, Bruce, on the supply side, in terms of people coming back into the labor market, um, 
maybe Malcolm has some color on the UK, but what I can see and what I definitely read in the media is that after the great resignation comes the great unresignation. Um, people who had dropped out of employment are coming back. Either they need money, they're bored, <laughs> lure a flexible work, opportunities being offered, more part-time jobs being offered. So I think at least half of the issue of inactivity that we'd seen is actually going to get resolved uh, through this channel. Well, let me just say that uh, on that front, uh, we've had a fairly substantial rise in the prime age participation rate in the U.S. And in across the developed market economies, prime age participation rates are now above their pre-crisis levels. Uh, if I do my estimates for the U.S., I still think we've got a hole of well over two percentage points in the labor force from where it was before the pandemic. Uh, I don't see... Uh, a reasonable case to say that that's going to get uh, closed in any kind of business cycle horizon, one to two years, let's just say. I mean, maybe it can get closed over a five-year period, but that's the problem. Ta the question is whether time is on your side. Um, and if you think that monetary policy is going to cause a recession, but just with a little bit of lag, then we're talking about something different because the recession then delivers your disinflation from the perspective of, of compressing demand sharply. But what I'm suggesting, if you don't have monetary policy causing a recession, I don't think you can get the supply response. And I don't think you're going to get um, inflation go all the way back, even though, as I think we all agree, there's a, a disinflationary impulse. Now, there's an interesting thing in what you're saying, Nora, which I, I think we should at least be um, considering, which is even if my basic view is right, that the downward trajectory of its pricing here is going to be powerful enough to really shift the inflation process. Uh, because that impulse, both from uh, the unwinding of uh, uh, disruptions that were in place, as well as the more more new and building impact from things like deflation coming out of China, maybe those forces are just going to dominate and we're going to get a, a goods-driven period of weak inflation that could be offsetting uh, services and having a broader impact on on psychology. That, to me, would be certainly, from what you were saying, I think one of the, one of the arguments that, that could play out differently than I expect. And it's worth, it's worth paying some attention to that, that storyline. I, I just Bruce, think we're putting too much, I mean, too much weight on this kind of salient psychology point. I think it could get there, but the, the kind of inconvenient truth of all of this is that, you know, whether I look at five-year, five-year, five-year break-evens, all of them are actually a bit lower than we were from if you go back to say pre-GFC. I mean, I don't, I don't see that pressure building. And I know your point, Bruce, is more about the one year, but or the one year, one year. I mean, that that is very kind of commodity-driven. I think that's going to kind of move. But Joe, isn't that around. the point? If you look at one year forward inflation expectations, look at the latest UMICH survey, look at the latest New York Fed survey. High. Well, the point they're I would not, make is they are high. That I, would, that I don't disagree that it could be a problem. They're but high, I think they're high and especially high if you take into account the fact that the last last nine months has seen a major drop in commodity prices and energy prices. The fact that these things haven't come all the way down with that is actually unusual. And wow, is, is the five year still lower? Well, I, I think we're making a distinction between the expectations in markets, which I think is right, that central banks will eventually get control over this with the sense that the short-term expectations, which I think are very important in driving behavior, 
are still elevated. Right, but Those I, I guess factors... I'm just not worried about this market psychology thing. I am worried about whether firms have the pricing power to feel like they can pass on. But that's what we're talking not. about. That is what we're talking right. about. I, I mean, I agree with Nora that as it headline inflation comes down, I think the wage demands will start to come down. But as long as businesses feel like they can continue to pass on wage costs, that keeps this wage price spiral. And when I go around the country and talk to corporates and they're telling me, you know, I say, why were you, why are you raising prices now? You weren't raising prices before the, before the pandemic. We were worried, we were scratching our heads why there wasn't more inflation. And they all say before the pandemic, we weren't raising prices because we worried about losing market share. Now we're not worried about raising prices because everyone's raising prices. And that's a, that's a scary backdrop. I mean, maybe that's what you mean by kind of salience. To me, it's they have the ability to do that because you're in a new equilibrium, right? You're kind of in this kind of different pricing equilibrium than you were before. And I would describe that a bit differently, which is I think when, when we talk about inflation expectations as economists, we, we use that term as if we all know what it means. But I actually think that that phrase actually is sweeping under the carpet a lot of stuff that is a little bit ill understood. I mean, it's a lot. One of the things I think the pandemic has done is it delivered such a large set of shocks across so many sectors that I can't believe it, that it hasn't changed a lot of the decision making within firms, including how often you revisit your. Well, that's what I meant, Malcolm, when I said yeah. I, the pandemic was like a coordinating event, right? Like before you had a lot of independent actors, you get this kind of Nash equilibrium, efficient kind of Bertrand style pricing. And now that coordinating event shocked everyone into this new kind of more Corneau style pricing, which is more oligopolistic type pricing, higher pricing, lower consumer surplus. And then I think in time that kind of salience and it starts to get into, into expectation that Bruce is worried about. But I think that the mechanism and the channel is what we're seeing right now. And it's not it's not fully borne out. That supply curve could shift out. The team transitory could be right. And maybe things fade back to where we were before the pandemic. But, you know, it's it's uh, the first half of the year, as I said, has has surprised me at how resilient pricing power could I is. just and jump by the in way, it's giving you it's one of the reasons profits have held up as well as they had, because you're not getting the margin squeeze that we expected. And that in turn is leading to the resilience in the in the economy. We revised up both inflation in the first half and growth in the first half. And consequently, we've been revising up terminal rates, which is why this kind of boiling the frog scenario, at least from the global team, has been the more dominant driver of the of the narrative than what our, what our house view is. Could I just so ask, I think we to bring this Nora, all... Well, I want to ask Nora one thing, because I think we've talked about this and there's a lot of, of the dynamic is focused on the US or the DM. Many of the forces we're talking about in terms of the damage done to supply the the actual spike in inflation uh, have been ex in, in in many cases more extreme in a lot of EM countries. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your your optimism, are you just saying those things don't really matter that they'll wind in EM? Are, are we as optimistic on EM when you're when you're expressing your optimism? Mm -hmm. you are, are you as optimistic, more optimistic or less optimistic about the the broader EM story? in terms of disinflation than we talk about the US or Western Europe. 
Yeah, I would say at least as optimistic, if not more optimistic. <laughs> I think there's 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 actually more. Then you're going to get inflation back down to 2019 levels across EM. I mean, you're going to say let's put Asia aside, but EM Asia is actually getting inflation back on target this year. Um, but yeah, I think for the others as well. I mean, it's exactly the countries where inflation surged the most is where we're seeing inflation come off very sharply. Remember EMs central banks started hiking a good one year before DM central banks, and they're reaping the benefits of those hiking cycles. As we know, now we have this strong uh, FX appreciation also pushing inflation down and imported inflation down. Remember, EMs have a larger share of goods in their CPI baskets, two thirds of it is good. So they're getting a very powerful disinflation impulse. And I think let's not underestimate the impact of headline inflation coming off in terms of how it feeds through into inflation expectations, wage negotiations, and EM headline inflation does matter a, a fair bit. So I think there's actually a pretty good chance here for many of the EMs to have, a, if not complete, um, disinflation, but close to complete. Remember EM labor markets as well. We've seen almost uh, full recovery and things like participation rates. Um, so I think even from a labor supply perspective, EM probably has a better chance of uh, seeing more of a complete um, normalization in many respects. Can and I ask, from China. We, we, well, we, we haven't mentioned yet the potential upside risks from food inflation. I mean, I'm kind of getting more worried yes. about El Nino effects, the Russia grain deal falling apart. And food is very important for your region, right? Yeah, uh, this this was going to be my caveat at the end, where we're supposed to talk about what the risks are to our view. I would say um, for YAM, it's certainly, um, I would say a lot of this optimism I've expressed uh, rests on um, the supply shocks going in the favorable direction and remaining benign, as in evaporating from the scene. I think if we start going in the opposite direction, we start getting adverse supply shocks, be it from energy, be it from food, that's going to have a substantial uh, upward effect on headline inflation and can do, undo a lot of this progress uh, that that we've seen on, on this inflation front. So, uh, I mean, just in terms of our base case, we see El Nino as a risk, upside risk, uh, that's not currently embedded in our uh, food inflation forecast. Um, but I would say it's not that substantial, especially if we assume that governments, you know, have in place uh, certain measures they can use to offset that. They've built up strategic river reserves of many crucial um, agri-commodities. So um, ultimately, I don't think El Nino is going to spoil the party. And then I guess the other thing I would I'd worry about from your side of things in the story you laid out, Nora, which is all sensible is that in what can upend it is if we are talking a world where maybe the Fed is not just hiking once more, but maybe two, three, maybe even four times more, depending on the boil the frog scenario and how extreme you want to get. Uh, ECB probably is doing more. Bank of England's doing more. Uh, and we have a, a world in which the EM is just cutting through this because you said they, they got much higher. They're taking the reaping the benefits of this. Do you worry about the a shift in currencies that actually starts to undermine the inflation? Uh, you know. Downfall? Yeah, I mean, I didn't say EM would cut through uh, an additional massive DM hiking cycle, right? We're arguing the case that we weren't going to get additional DM hikes. I think it depends on the dollar a lot, ultimately, right? That's a very important point we've been um, hitting on that. I think if these additional DM rate hikes or renewed tightening cycles in uh, DM 
or in the US in particular, start pushing the dollar uh, stronger, that could bring to an early end some of these um, yeah, amazing cycles. But I think in the near term, there's certainly room for these cycles to at least start. Um, and then maybe they end up being a bit more gradual. Maybe we end up with um, rates not coming down quite as much as we thought, but certainly there's a runway here where EMs can adjust and calibrate depending on their own um, domestic uh, inflation dynamics coming down. So guys, I think we need to, to bring our, our discussion to a close. I'm going to ask you very briefly to just give me your bias relative to what we do have in the published forecast after this discussion. Um, at the end of December 24, after a kind of mild US recession, which you know gets some Fed rate reductions, um, a global economy that kind of moves a little bit in sync with that, but doesn't see what I would regard as very pronounced weakness. Uh, we have developed markets inflation a little bit above two, 2.3 in over a year ago terms at the end of 24, EM a little bit above three. Um, you know, in that world, those numbers seem loaded to you with bias in, in a particular direction. Let's start with you, Bruce. Upside. Joe? Yeah, twenty and 24 is a little complicated because there could be a recession by that point. But I just think in general, there's, there's more inflation risk to the, to the upside. And, and Nora, given the enthusiasm for EM disinflation, uh, it's, 3. It, I was I was given a side to argue, right? Like I'm just making the case. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> Come on. Your heart said, I can um, tell Nora. I, I mentioned so I, I mentioned a two and a half percent number, didn't I? So I think that's the number roughly that I'm converging on here. And for EM, it would be something around three is where I would see things settling. Okay. Uh, I'll where still... was and where was the M core inflation before the pandemic? Yeah, we were we were definitely um, below. There was a st strong structural uh, disinflation. I thought we were closer yeah. to two, though, weren't we? Yeah, we were we were undershooting. So we've argued that sort of late twenty nineteen might not be the best um, comparison for the normal. We were at two point six, Bruce. And then okay, in so 2018, we were return. around we were around three, which is where I'm saying we're going to most likely return to 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 Malcolm's question, okay. around three percent for EM. All right. So with that big voting favor of EM disinflation, we'll we'll call, bring things to a close. Well, well, um, maybe guys, the maybe the U.S. is now part of the EM in this conversation. <laughs> let's not let's not mention the U.K. here. Um, in the U.K. Say, if the U.S. <laughs> is the EM, where's the we're UK? all EM now. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, I hope uh, listeners have found this uh, an interesting insight into some of the dialogues that we're having in internally. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there. This has been uh, JP Morgan's Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 18th, 2023.